Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to the very end? We're going to be looking today at uh, chapters 21 and the beginning of chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. And that's all printed in the bulletin. It's a lengthy passage over two pages, but it is great. It's such an excellent passage of Scripture. I'm excited to read it with you. Uh, this is still part of our, our series beginning the year talking about the, the believer's hope, what it is that the Bible promises us that we have to look forward to, how the Lord is active in sustaining our hope and giving us these uh, great and precious promises to give us new hope when our hope is failing. And so I want to read this. Uh, I'm going to read it again from Revelation 21.1 through 22, verse 7. So let me ask, if you're able, would you please join me in standing? This is God's perfect, holy, inerrant word which revives our souls. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, 
the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for, its for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's pray one more time. Father, we're, we're thankful for your word. We've confessed our faith that it does revive our souls and, and rejoice our hearts. So Lord, we pray now that through your spirit you may... Uh, and uh, use your word for these purposes. Lord, may it fulfill uh, the purpose for which you have sent it. May it not return to you void. The Lord, encourage your saints. Build us up. Give us hope. Renew our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, one of my springtime rituals that I get to do every spring is the planning of the family summer vacation. Each year for the last several years, we've been able to take a, sort of a long road trip in which we go to various national parks around the, the western part of our country and do a bunch of camping and hiking uh, and, and just enjoy the beauty that is out there and being renewed in, in creation. Uh, however, as fun as those trips are, they do require quite a bit of planning in order for them to get pulled off successfully. You have to reserve the campsites. You have to plan the travel days and how far you plan to go each day. You have to plan menus, uh, try to plan the, the things that we'll do when we get there, uh, how long you're going to stay in each spot. It's a lot of work. But I enjoy it. I, I really do. The planning itself, it's not just the, all the logistics that have to be thought through, but... There's a lot of dreaming of the fun that we're going to have, a lot of dreaming of the memories that we'll make as a family. There's usually trips to REI, and I love trips to REI. Uh, the planning itself, for me, is a lot of fun. Um, even the anticipation of joy 
gives me joy. And it, and it helps me, you know, during those, those times in the spring when uh, life may feel like it's a, a slog and everything is sort of getting me down and there's, there's troubles, to remember that, that, you know, there's vacation coming, right? Things might feel like a great weight at this time, but there will be a time to be released from those weights and to simply uh, relax and be renewed in joy. The anticipation of joy gives me joy. Kids, I wonder what sort of things you look forward to the most. Maybe you look forward to Christmas. Maybe your birthday. Maybe going to Disneyland. Maybe you look forward to the Cubs winning another World Series again sometime soon. Right? There's all these things that we look forward to in life. And isn't it, you know, even that act of looking forward to these things that we're so excited about, doesn't that give you joy? The anticipation of joy gives us joy. In some sense, that might, might sound to you like it's just escapism, like we're just unwilling to face the difficulties of life, so we think about happy things instead, but, but it's not. Because the Bible itself helps us with this. It encourages us in this. It gives us things like Revelation 21 and 22. And it gives those to us so that we will read them and our hearts will eagerly anticipate the glories and the joys that are going to be ours. God wants us to know these great and precious promises. He wants us to know what is the believer's heritage that we have to look forward to so that in our times of deepest trial, when life feels like a slog, right, and there's this great weight weighing down on us, we have this anticipation that it's not always going to be this way. We may walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this lifetime, but there is an end to it. There is an end in which we will will come out of it and Christ himself will take his people home to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, which here is is described that he's preparing for us. And death will be no more. And mourning and crying and sadness and pain will be no more. God gives us these words to encourage us. As we read in Romans 8 several weeks ago, he says, you know, he's looking forward to the fact that there is a glory and a joy that is yet to come to which our present trials are, are not worth comparing. Right? And you should try. Right? That's the whole point, is you should try and you should realize, okay, what I'm going through, as bad as it is, and, and as, 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 as much as it does weigh us down appropriately now, says it's not worth comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed within us. And, and so that's where we are today. And, and this is, we've been talking about the things that we have to hope in, the things that we look forward to as believers. We've talked about the second coming of Jesus, the judgment day, Uh, the resurrection of the body, and today, this reality of the new heavens and the new earth that is yet to come. So I want to take this in three points. Number one, to talk about the reality of the new earth. The reality of the new earth. And then uh, number two, God will be there. And number three, we will be like a bride prepared for her husband. So the reality of the new earth, God will be there and we will be like a bride prepared for her husband. First, I want to talk just a little bit about the reality that's described in these verses, the reality of the new heavens and the new earth that God is preparing for his people. I mentioned last week, and I'm reminded of this again, of the far side cartoons and just the popular perception of what heaven is like as sort of 
just floating around in heaven, maybe on top of the clouds with our harps and maybe not much else to do there. It's such a, just a widespread cultural idea of what the afterlife is like that I think sometimes it can be hard for us to, to realize that the Bible teaches something very different. That the Bible teaches that God will uh, create a new earth on which we shall live in glorified, resurrected bodies to the praise of God. That's the picture we get in these chapters. Revelation pictures a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth have passed away. So not just heaven, but a new heavens and a new earth as well. And what we saw in that vision, uh, if you heard what, what John sees when the angel takes him to the great mountain, and he has a vision, he sees the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. Now what does that mean? If we look here at verse 9, chapter 21, verse 9, uh, this angel takes him up to this mountain. Uh, he says, he describes it, verse 9, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. Now, we know, in the whole Bible, it talks about the church as being the bride of Christ. So he says, I'm going to show you the bride, right? This is, this is an anticipation of a vision of the people of God. Now, they go to the mountain, and what he sees, he describes as though it were a city. Right? So, so he says, I'm going to show you the bride, and it looks like a city. Now, <clears throat> Because it looks like a city, that, that makes many interpreters read the description and come to the conclusion that that description of a city with its walls and its gates and its foundations is not necessarily meant to be taken literally because the angel said, I'm showing you the bride, right? I'm showing you the church, the saints, the collection of all believers throughout all time, all around the world, the church triumphant in that moment. That's what's being described and, and he's using these metaphors of the most glorious city made completely out of gold and crystal and jewels to describe the glory and the beauty, the radiance and the perfection of the saints in heaven. This is a vision of the church. And the church is now coming down out of heaven onto the new earth. And so remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the resurrection of the dead, we talked about a sort of Christian anticipation. What's going to happen? Well, when we die, we said our souls go to heaven to be immediately in the presence of Jesus and filled with great joy. Our bodies stay in the grave until the resurrection of the dead. When Jesus returns, they are reunited, right? Our bodies are raised from the dead, glorified. We receive new, transformed, perfected bodies, and, and we're made a, a whole human person again. And that seems to be part of what he's seeing. Right? The souls of the believer, believers and the saints that have been in heaven are now coming down onto the new earth. And so if we were to ask the question very simply, in eternity, will we live in heaven or on earth? One way to answer that question is to say, yes. In fact, one writer says it this way. He says, since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, that's, that's exactly what we saw, right? The city comes down to earth. Since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, and since where God dwells, there heaven is, we shall continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. For heaven and earth will then no longer be separated as they are now, 
but will be one. They will be one because here he sees God and the saints, the bride, coming down out of heaven onto the new earth that Jesus has made. And again, that's what we see in, in uh, verses 1 through 3. Right? In, uh, in chapter 21, verse 2 in particular, I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here's the explanation in verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's the, the explanation, is that the dwelling place of God is now with man. Now, what is that new earth going to be like? That is a, a fun question to ask. And in many ways, we just have to admit we don't really know a lot of particulars. Um, but I do think there's an analogy to be made. And last week, in talking about the resurrection of our bodies, we talked about how when Jesus raises our bodies from the dead, there will be both continuity and discontinuity. We anticipate that there will be some continuity between our current bodies and our glorified bodies. Now, Jesus' disciples were st- still able to recognize him after he received his glorious body. He still bore the wounds of his crucifixion in his glorious body. Uh, but there was also discontinuity. Right? Glory- glorified bodies are perfected, not, not liable to death or disease or injury or suffering. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. I I think we can take that as an analogy, perhaps, with the earth as well. Uh, Jesus, in 21.5, says, Behold, I am making all things new. And that is what he is doing, making the heavens and the earth new as well. They will pass away, and they will be renewed. Just like our bodies, they will pass away, and they also will be renewed, raised in glory. And so we might expect that the earth, it will still be an earth, right? It'll be something that we recognize as an earth. But it also, it will be a new creation. It will be glorified. It will be perfectly redeemed, finally liberated from its bondage to decay, liberated from the curse, liberated from all the effects of sin. It will be glorious. It will be a glorious, redeemed, new earth. We don't know what all the details of it exactly will be. I know, at least for me, there's so many questions. And we don't know. Uh, Most theologians, they struggle with these chapters to try to decide how much of these descriptions should we take perfectly literally and how many of them are some metaphor to describe the glory of the new creation. For instance, uh, 21.1 says, uh, the sea will be no more. The sea will be no more. So it says that in the new earth there's no sea. Now, we don't know. Do we take that perfectly literally to say there will simply be no large bodies of water on the new earth? Or is this, uh, which I think is probably more likely, tapping into the whole biblical metaphor that the sea is understood as the place of of chaos, it's a place of of darkness. Uh, The sea is the place from which the beasts in Revelation rise up out of. It seems to be the storehouse of evil. And so it's saying that is no more because fear, sin, death, all these things are no more. So it's speaking metaphorically. I think that's probably the way it's speaking, but we won't be too dogmatic about that. I I like the sea, so that's what I'm hoping for. But we'll find out one day and we'll talk about it later. But rather than focus on too many of the particulars of exactly what the earth will look like in those days, I want us to to see this. 
I see two themes that come to the front of these two chapters. And these are the next two points. The two themes are, one, that God will be with us, and second, that we will be like a bride prepared for her husband. So the second point is this, the dwelling, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the main point throughout these chapters, is that God will be there and that we will be with him. We can bring so many practical questions out of our curiosities about what earth will be like in those days. You know, will the same animals be there? Will they be different somehow? Right? Will the mountains be the same? Will we still engage in the same resource mining and creating and, and our creativity putting things together? Uh, we don't know. We have no idea. But the main point that Revelation wants us not to miss in these chapters is that God will be with his people. That he will be our God. We will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The joy of heaven is the joy that we will live with God. There won't be any temple there anymore. Right? Because the temple, the, the tabernacle, the temple of the Old Testament, you know, in one sense it was so God could live with his people, but it was also designed to shield the people from God. Right? No one could go into the Holy of Holies because as a sinner to enter into the presence of God you would be obliterated. Right? Sinners cannot stand in the holy, perfect presence of a holy God. And, and so the temple was also a wall of division to keep us separate. We could bring our worship, but, but no one could see God. Remember in Exodus, Moses asks to see God's face, and the answer is no. No man can see God's face and live. But in heaven we will. We will be there. There's no temple. There's God. God himself. There is no curtain that keeps us, that, that blocks the way into the presence of God. It says there's no temple for God himself and the Lamb will be there. His throne will be there. John Piper once asked a, a, a question, and perhaps you've heard this before. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied there if Christ wasn't there? See, what he want, he's making the same point is that the joy that we look forward to is not our own curiosities about what we will be able to do with glorified bodies. The joy of heaven is that God will be there and the Lamb will be there and we will dwell with them and sing their praises. That is the joy and the glory of heaven. There's no sun because God is there and he provides all the light we will ever need. Uh, 22.4 says we'll see his face. 22.4, they will see his face. That's the first time in the Bible that it's been said that we will be able to see God's face and live. Because we will have been glorified ourselves. We will be no longer set back by sin, no longer marred and tainted by our own sin. But we will have been set free from sin and able to see his face. Psalm 17.11 actually looks forward to that. It's the last verse of Psalm 17. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And he says when I awake, he's not talking about tomorrow morning. 
He's saying, when I awake on that great day, the resurrection of the dead, my glorified body, to be in the presence of Jesus, he says, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. You shall look on God and see his face in righteousness. That is the joy that heaven is described as for us. God himself will be with us. The second main point of these chapters, it's not merely that God is with us, but that we shall be like a bride adorned for her husband. It's mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 21. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Down in verse 9, it says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I think this is one of the most important themes that comes out in these chapters. In the whole description of what to expect and anticipate in the new heavens and the new earth, it's that when he sees the saints, he says they're like a bride perfectly adorned, perfectly adorned, for her husband, which is interesting.